Pray with me. O Lord, so cleanse our hearts that we may hear you. So cleanse our ears that we may listen to you. So cleanse our souls that we may welcome you. And so cleanse our lips that we may proclaim you to the world. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Many, if not all of us, know and have memorized John 3.16. And yet, many, if not all of us, have changed it when we quote it to ourselves in our lives. We often misquote this verse to ourselves with a caveat. We might say something like, For God so loved the good people of the world. Or, For God so loved the Christians of the world. For some of us, For God so loved only those who are exactly like me in this world. And for others, For God so loved only those who are nothing like me, who do not struggle with the things I struggle with, that he gave his only begotten son only for them. Or perhaps you prefer a children's song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, so long as I behave, so long as I shape up and step in line. These are some of the lies that we often tell ourselves day in and day out. But these are not the truth that we hear this morning in today's scriptures. Today we read three scripture passages which all together paint the same picture. There is a vast multitude standing out in the wilderness, gathered together, hungry and thirsty. Nehemiah tells us this story in a very interesting context. In his context, the people had been exiled from their homeland, from the holy city, the place where God dwelled, they had been cast out of. And now, Nehemiah reads the words of the Torah to them through tears and translators. He reads the Old Testament in the midst of ruins. The walls had crumbled and God had not saved his people. The temple had been desecrated by foreign idols. Then it was burned and destroyed and God had done nothing. Every aspect of their faith tradition that tells them that they are the chosen people of God now seems like it is missing or in shambles. And in the midst of this, Nehemiah tells them the story of the giving of the law at Mount Horeb. It is the story when Moses went up in a metaphorical image of a great wedding ceremony. He went up onto a high mountain, up onto a metaphorical altar before God, their maker and their savior. And Yahweh was married to Israel. They had just crossed over the Red Sea. They had just left their slavery and idolatry behind. 
They had just been rescued from 450 years of oppression. They were finally able to worship the Lord their God. And the Israelites gathered around the base of this mountain altar and they worshipped their God as one people. Wouldn't it be nice if that were how the story went? But that is not exactly the story that Nehemiah tells us. Instead, Nehemiah tells us the story of Moses going up onto a mountain altar with God. He tells us the story of a metaphorical ceremony, a wedding with God between Yahweh and Israel. And at the base of that altar mountain, the bride of Yahweh fashions for themselves false idols. And in the middle of the wedding ceremony, they commit adultery. It says in verse 17, they refused to obey this law of God. And they were not mindful of the wonders that God had just performed among them. Whoa. Even in one of the highest moments of Israel's history, they gathered together in idol worship. And this is the story that Nehemiah tells the new people of the new Jerusalem who had just returned to shambles. But he doesn't end the story with the idolatry. He continues, he says, even in the, at the time when they had made for themselves a golden calf, even when they had committed these great blasphemies, verse 19, God in His great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud to lead them in the way still did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night. They had not been cast off. This is the story of Nehemiah telling the people of Israel the gospel, the good news that God Almighty had saved a stiff-necked people, that they had not been cast off. Instead, he had led idol worshipers into repentance and on into the promised land. And we can fast forward then to the gospel for this morning. Matthew gives us the story of that same consuming fire in Matthew 14. He tells us that the pillar of cloud now stands yet again before the Israelites in the wilderness. Matthew paints for us a very intentional picture of a new Moses standing before a crowd of people. Jesus stands before adulterers, sinners, tax collectors, and those who were supposedly accursed by God. We know the answer, but they don't. What will Jesus do to them? What will this consuming fire do to these people? Why has He come? Has He come to destroy them? Has He come to judge the living and the dead? Because his verdicts will have no end, as we say in the Nicene Creed. And what will be that verdict? 
has he come to finally, after all of these centuries, cast off the children of promise? Well, we can now move to Malachi. Flipping through your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi speaks to the same question, the same yearning and wonder. What will God do? He says, Behold, I send my messenger, whom we know is now John the Baptist. I will send John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. It's good news for people who no longer have a temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. That's good news. Our delight is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure this day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap, which is used separate the impurities from the pure metals. Then I will draw near to you for the judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, those who oppress, oppress the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the immigrant and do not fear me. In short, those who are standing before Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 14. And he continues, For I, the Lord, do not change. And you expect him to say, Fire and brimstone comes, but instead a plot twist. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is Malachi's prophecy of John the Baptist. And I bring it up because in Matthew 14, the verse before what we read this morning, we hear the story of John the Baptist being beheaded. His prophetic ministry has officially come to a very real end, which means the way of the Lord has been fully prepared. The time is here. And Jesus has come out into the wilderness in our story this morning to mourn in solitude. But instead, he finds out in the wilderness the people there, ready for their judgment. What will he do? They have a longing in their hearts to meet their Messiah. They are looking for him intently, but they also know that when they find him, they might find judgment. Malachi does not end in chapter 3. He continues in verse 4, 4. He says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the father to their children. Well, that's good news. And he will turn the hearts of the children to their parents. More good news. Or else, I will come and strike the land with total 
destruction. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So which is it? Is it the good news of turning? Or is it total destruction? Malachi doesn't tell us the answer. Instead, that sentence is how the Old Testament ends. With these words of either turning hearts back or utter destruction, 450 years of silence begins. And it is not broken until John the Baptist cries out in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. I want you in your, in your homes to know the gravity of what these people in Matthew are feeling. Because I think many of us maybe repackage it or reword it, but still feel it. Perhaps some of us feel a sense of impending doom. That maybe God will finally cast me off too. Or perhaps you sense a wind of change coming for you. Perhaps this favor won't, end, won't last as long as I had hoped. Perhaps you ask, God, why does this happen to me? Didn't I love you enough? Wasn't I good enough? I want to reawaken those questions again this morning because I think many of us already feel them. I want to bring them back before your eyes and then I want to let the Scripture answer them. And so, some gravity. You who creep back to your phone like an addict... You who purchase clothing from brands that use slave labor and oppress the foreigner and the worker. You who buy groceries from produce aisles picked by indentured servants. You who are having an affair with Netflix. You who steal from God his tithes and offerings only to dote them instead on Amazon Prime or Costco or Lexus. What will God do with you? Will he cast you off? Has he done so already? Well, we can return with these questions to Malachi. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change, and therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You will not be cast off. We can return to Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 18 and 19. Even when the Israelites had made for themselves a golden calf at Mount Horeb, even when they had committed great blasphemies, you, O God, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. And we can return to the psalm that we said this morning, Psalm 78 Because they did not believe in God, and because they did not put their trust in His help, so He commanded the clouds above, and He opened the doors of heaven, and He rained down upon them. What? You expect to hear fire and brimstone again. No, 
Instead, we hear that he rained down upon them manna to eat. And he gave them food from heaven so that mortals like us ate the bread of angels, for he sent them food enough. Finally, we can return to Matthew 14. Then Jesus ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And this is a true story. Pause for a moment moment, and remember that this is a true story. Then he broke the five loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate. All 20,000 or so men, women, and children ate, and every one of them was satisfied. Even more than that, the disciples then took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. So, will you be cast off? Has God done so already? No. These are the great deceivers' lies, the accusers' lies against you when you hear them. And yet, Jesus, in his compassion, still answers even questions like these. Because he fed the 20,000. Those who trusted in God, the adulterers, the tax collectors, the sinners, those who were too religious who turned to him, those Israelites in the wilderness who followed their hunger to the man, received their fill of the bread of life. And God had compassion on the stiff-necked, and he will do the same for anyone who cries out in the name of Jesus and repents. Anyone. You, my friends, are already loved by God, as we heard in the first song this morning. For God so loved the world in this manner that he sent his only begotten Son that whosoever, no caveats, believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. You already have his compassion and mercy where you sit right now. And so as we prepare the table for Eucharist, let us also prepare our hearts to invite yet again this high King of heaven into our hearts and souls. Let us enter even into the wild and desolate places of our souls and let us invite that pillar of fire into the dark and hidden parts to feed our deepest hunger eternally. Then we too, as we receive communion in our homes today, will feast on the bread of angels. Amen.